This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 193. We're almost at 200. I can't even believe it. Today, I sat down with Mary Von Prague, the global CEO of Milani Cosmetics. Founded over 20 years ago with the belief that everyone should have the opportunity to own and enjoy luxury beauty, Milani Cosmetics continues to deliver high-end yet accessible makeup. Mary talks about her impressive career journey from working in sales to becoming general manager at Cody to her first CEO role at Paracone MD to becoming president of Soma and now global CEO of Milani Cosmetics. As the queen of turnarounds within the beauty space, we talk about her passion for transforming companies, the importance of being vulnerable as a leader, and how she's moved 17 times. I hope you enjoy this episode and thanks so much for listening. Hi, Mary. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm so excited to hear your story and becoming global CEO of Milani Cosmetics. How are you today? I'm great and happy new year. Glad to start off the week with you. I know. We're starting off the year together here. Very excited to hear your story. You have such an incredible background as CEO and leaders of a companies in beauty and apparel and all of the things. So I'm excited to hear your story. Let's start from the very beginning. Where did you grow up? Let's hear about your childhood. Were you a little leader growing up? Like do you, looking back? Probably haven't heard of where I lived. I, I grew up in Centerville, Ohio, which is a suburb of Dayton, Ohio. I was the eldest. I have two sisters, so I'm the oldest child, which you know has a bit of a stigma associated with that. My parents divorced when I was about 11 years old. So I did have this deep and my father moved to a different city. So I had this deep sense of responsibility when my mom worked to just kind of mind my sisters and just, I think a lot fell on my shoulders at that time. So you might call that my early leadership development. I always felt responsible. I call it a little bit of a, I changed middle school quite a few times too, because my mom was a real estate agent and she kept like buying a house and flipping it and moving to another. So I started this, and you'll hear a little bit more about that later moving and having to adjust to change very quickly early on in my life. Because you also moved schools, not just homes. Yeah, schools and homes. But it was all in the same area. I then ended up being a feeder into the, the high school, which was Centerville High School. So I went to three middle schools that fed into Centerville High School. And Centerville High School was an interesting... I always had dreamed about being on this drill team. And it was, I call it kind of AKA the Rockettes. We ended up performing at the Browns, the Bengals games, and eventually the Macy's parade. And I was the captain of this 80 person drill team. 
which created a lot of like, again, additional responsibility, discipline, but also this act of, I call it a bit of performance, like having to be on and really be great at your trade. And so I led this this drill team for four years of high school and was the captain my senior year. So that was very, very exciting. And that led to a bit of a job at the YMCA teaching other people. And I was able to recruit people and make a commission off of everybody that joins the class. And so that was kind of like my first commercial taste. And during high school, I had my mom sign up to be an Avon lady so that I could handle the product and the sales. She didn't do anything. She was just the name on the book. And I started this Avon business as kind of in the locker block, I call it. And I recruited all these people in my locker block to sell for me. And I just loved the product. I loved beauty and the fragrance samples and bagging it up and the catalogs. I mean, I'm I'm dating myself here. But I really enjoyed the product aspect. And I recognized very early on, I might have been a bit of an entrepreneur and really kind of understood that customer interface. I loved sales and I loved the revenue aspect of of that. So I did that through high school. And I did a few other little odd jobs like selling jewelry at a jewelry store. I was a salon receptionist. And I also worked in a, a clothing store. So that then started like my drive around running a business, thinking about commercial aspect and and really sales, if you think about it. And I graduated high school and went to Miami University, which was also based in Ohio, Oxford, Ohio. And they had a great business program. So I was a business major with a marketing emphasis. And I also was, I joined a sorority and was a sorority officer for pretty much throughout my four years there as well. And I studied hard. Like I was an, I would call it a above average student, but I was ready for the job. Like when I was at college, I don't know that I enjoyed the true college aspect. I worked hard. I was pretty serious. And I was fortunate enough to be recruited off the college campus. I had two offers. One was, I could go work for Macy's and either their buying program or store management route. But I thought of that. I'm like, do I want to work every holiday? <laughs> do I, do I really want to work that? Or I, I had another offer to work for Playtex consumer products where I would make my first of 17 moves professionally <laughs> to Louisville, Kentucky. And they gave me a company car. So I kind of liked the aspect of thinking I could again, be the master of my own territory and have well, the some car sounds cool too. I mean, that's a yeah. Plus. Oh, it was a red Chevy Nova. I was really cool. <laughs> yeah. You're like a car comes with this deal. That's yeah. Nice. The car came with the deal. It was part of the package. And I, I made my first move to Louisville, Kentucky and had the entire state of Kentucky as my first territory. But I think back to your question about being a leader early on, I was very autonomous and this was you know, this was probably, I was a bit of a trailblazer. I didn't see too many female leaders sitting in Kroger's buying offices or Winn-Dixie's buying offices at the time. I was very independent. I worked this whole territory myself and had to have the gumption to make the sale, meet other people sitting in the waiting room. And I was a bit ahead of my time. I bet. And even before then, as a kid, you know, you mentioned being responsible. You're the oldest of two sisters. 
Is there any kind of really early, early, like what's your earliest, I guess, memory of maybe being entrepreneurial or showing leadership in some way or something when you were a real kid, you know, and they were like, that was maybe the spark of something. You mean before I was the Avon lady in high yeah, school? Yeah, like before back, high back. school, like yeah. elementary school, maybe oh, six, seven, well, eight, well, nine, in- ten. <laughs> Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Well, that's probably when I was reading Nancy Drew mysteries and Harriet the Spy. And oh, I, I had this fancy setup in my basement where I was like the librarian. You'd have to come in and check out my books. And I, I think I actually ruined a lot of my dad's, like, I think they called them the great books at the time where you pay like top dollar for these things. And I stamped the library card all over it. Did you make your sisters like check out oh, library books from you? Oh, yeah. They all had to, as they were stealing my sweater and taking it off during middle school and changing it. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I it, it was all that. I don't remember like one specific thing outside of that. I think that started my love of books too. I'm a ferocious reader. I read a book a week now. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. I love, I love to read. <laughs> it's funny. Well, there's lots of synergies here. I'm an older sister. I have a younger sister. I only have one though, one sister. So I do understand the older sibling thing where you feel like, you know, you're the one that's got to go kind of first for everything. And she got to kind of go to high school and meet all of my friends and get the tips on like how to wear the uniform the right way and what kind of socks to buy. And (laughs) for sure. And then my sister, my sisters were a little closer in age. One of, one of us overlapped, you know, as a senior when she was a freshman but they ended up living in Florida when I went to Miami. So we then kind of diverged our path. We're all very, very close. But I was always the big sister, the one with the responsibility. And I think to this day, we'll always kind of hold that role with them. But we're all very, very close. And you moved around a lot. My family moved, I think, seven times, but I got to stay mm-hmm. at the same school. So I can't imagine how hard it must have been to be changing schools so often but changing houses is also just challenging as well because you're in different neighborhoods trying to make new friends. And it's a lot of ups and downs, I think, with that type of change. Yeah, I, th- I think the one thing I'd say is, as I give other people advice, is really think about the lifestyle you want to create and who you want to be around. During the time, I was quite driven in my career, right? From when I first started with Playtex Consumer Products all the way to now, I m- have moved with my husband, by the way, of 30 plus years, we have moved professionally 17 times. Wow. That is not normal, right? (laughs) Would I be here today had I not made all those moves? Probably not because you know, everything has a cause and effect. Mm -hmm. But when I give advice to people, it's like really pick the place where you want to live and create your life around that. Now I learned a lot and I created a great network and great root system of friends. Like a lot of times people look at me like, huh? You did what? It wasn't like I kept jumping companies. I worked for big companies. I worked for my first company, Playtex, for 10 years. And then J&J was seven and a half. Cody was seven and a half. So it wasn't like I kept, I just kept accelerating my career and moving yeah. my career path. And because I was in sales before I became a first-time general manager, president, CEO, all of those things, it was important that you lived near the region you managed or the customer base you managed. And I even, I, some of my funniest places were, I lived in Bentonville, Arkansas. So I was at one point the Johnson & Johnson team leader for all of their consumer business. And this was before Bentonville had a Sephora, mm-hmm. a P.F. Chang's, et cetera. So I always say I was well ahead of my time there. 
But that was a valuable experience. And I made my first international move when I became the general manager for a division of Cody in Canada. And that was a tremendous move because I had to learn a completely different culture and immerse myself between Montreal and Toronto and a lot of dual language individuals that said, oh, please don't botch up our language. We'll help you. You help us. But I immersed myself in the culture. And so moving, I think, indicates my ability to manage change and transformation. Yeah. But at the same time, create a great network of deep seated roots and connections that I will forever have in my life. Do you think you seek change? Do you think that helps you stay driven and inspired is changing it up? If you ask me, like, I would say I'm a change creator. (laughs) In fact, I'm at my best as a leader. When you look at the context of a situation, when something requires change and transformation, I love to make things better. I always call my leadership voice comes from this continuous improvement mindset, which is to come into a situation and go from good to great. I don't necessarily want a complete startup, right? But I like something that's kind of messy, needs a bit of a turnaround, needs some structure and process and operational like excellence with a vision and the right people to do it. And then I'm off to the races. I have like a strong bias for action. But I think that continuous change, continuous improvement mindset feeds well into that. Yes. And that that kind of gets me going. And it sounds like, you know, you're very much like that in your business life, but it sounds like you're also maybe seeking that same type of continuous improvement probably in your personal life. Yes. I've had to learn to balance a bit though, Lee. Like I've worked with some great coaches, mentors, sponsors. One of the coaches I have now that works with my team and me is working on this like balanced, holistic brain, right? We're, We're so trained to be left brain oriented as leaders. And that somehow don't miss the right side and that you want to have this fully integrated holistic self. So I'm working a lot on that, right? Which is kind of equal part empathy as well as authority too at the same time. And just really balancing it, not tethering myself to things that don't matter. (laughs) So that's also been a great, I'll call it a great, just a migration in my life, you know, just how to think about things and I would call it courageous too, like not being afraid of change, not being afraid of what's possible and transformation at the same time. And so it sounds like you've just had this incredible drive you mentioned that's kept you kind of motivated and going. Where do you think your drive comes from? You know, I, I, I've been that way pretty much my whole career. But my mom always said I kind of started as this shy girl. Maybe I had to wake up a little bit, right? I had to get in touch with kind of what drives me. I once had a mentor sponsor that said, I think you're a quiet leader. And I was like, oh, I don't think that sounds so good. And what she really meant was you haven't quite found your voice yet. And so I started just watching people and asking people for help and feedback and What I recognize early on is the only way you're going to influence people is if you find what that internal drive is, right? And mine was, like I said, that quest for change, that continuous improvement, and always wanting to be better personally, professionally, spiritually, all those things. And I just got in touch with that pretty early on and not being afraid to get that feedback. But that was kind of an awakening for me. 
you know, hearing that feedback of being a quiet leader, I'm like, that's not such a good thing. Although I do not like to be the center of attention. I like to coordinate experts and get the best out of everyone. I'm just the conduit for it. Right. And and finding your voice, I think, is what a lot of people probably struggle with. How do you think someone should go about finding their voice? Yeah, when I get asked that question from mentees and people that you know just want to learn a little bit more about their style and are open to feedback, I always say, find out what makes you tick. Like some people are great at constructive conflict. Others are analytical geniuses. Others are great teachers. I always say, find that thing that makes you unique or whatever your superpower is, really feed into it and use that as your voice, right? Use that as your motivation. Like, it's just think back to when you had participation in class. Like, what made you raise your hand? I hated raising <laughs> did you my wanna, hand. Right? Did you want to set the record straight? Did you want to be argumentative? Whatever that case may be, I just like, have your voice heard. Because, first of all, I always tell people, we don't have all the answers. Leaders don't have all the answers. What I want to hear is the people that are closest to the business that have a unique point of view. And we need to hear that. And so what inspires you to say that or to influence other people and just really get in touch with that? That's interesting. You know, I when you say raise your hand in class, what would you say? And I'm thinking, I don't, I hated raising my hand in class. And that was me though, as a kid. And I think time maybe and experience also helped shape you and finding your voice. Because now like in a business meeting, if someone wants to know my opinion, I got lots of things to say. Well, no, interesting you say that because I give you a little aside here. When I was at Johnson and Johnson, I really I never got my MBA, but because I had a business degree, it wasn't necessarily necessary. But I wanted to continue my education, so I asked them to sponsor me to go to a Harvard program called at the time it was called the General Management Program, which was really an opportunity to learn more about how to be a president, a CEO, etc. I was one of three females and 60 international students. And I got to tell you, it was, I was intimidated. Like there were brilliant people sitting around the room and I had to live in a pod for eight weeks, not in this, in a pod, meaning separate rooms, et cetera, with, I think it was six or seven other guys from all over the world. And I'm like, "Mm, I can easily sit in my room and be reclusive (laughs) and be afraid of this, or I can put myself out there. And so, what did that mean? It means, okay, I studied with them. I went to the spin class with the one that went spinning. You know, didn't mean we went out to dinner on a Friday night versus me just sitting in my room or sitting in that classroom. And at the end, we had to do a strategy presentation. And I remember that at the end, when I got this, I got an award for being like, the best strategy presentation. So, you know, the professor gave the award and I thought that's pretty incredible. So it was a profound moment for me, which was, what did I learn from that experience was I can contribute. It's not just, you know, I'm the, I'm this or I'm that I could be a leader and I can have a voice and I should not be afraid. And that was a profound moment. And that was, you know, quite a while ago, but that was one of those early moments in my career, which said, really be the leader that you're capable of being. Don't be afraid. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I, I maybe you found this too, that as you kind of flex that muscle of fearlessness, maybe, or speaking up, 
and it just gets stronger and stronger. And then you just become more and more confident and it's just really kind of builds upon itself. I think it's like such an important thing. It does. And then you got to just put it in the background and listen to everybody else. I always believe it's equal part listening, right? I can be interesting, but I have to be interested first, right? And while I can be a, I call it a a humble teacher, I'm going to be a proud learner. So there is less like humility with the strength at the same time. Like I don't always want to have the loudest voice either. I think that comes with being at the top though. Like you have to kind Mm -hmm. of be that way. I think for the people that aren't CEO maybe, and they're like in this room and they're VP or director or something, and they're still trying to, or they're just a manager or whatever it could be. They're trying to earn their voice. They're trying to figure out how to navigate and speak up. I'm sure you've been in meetings where you wish people would speak up. Maybe they didn't, they're too shy. And that's why I think CEOs, it is their job to be better listeners so that you encourage the team to to speak. And you have to make it safe and comfortable. Sometimes if I hear crickets, and many times you do, I'll like do a communication meeting, which says, here's what I've heard that I think is on your mind. Let me address these things in case you're afraid to ask. And then it makes it a safe environment that people are like, oh, she will be transparent and talk about this. Mm-hmm. And so I could be more comfortable. And I try to do smaller groups. Sometimes in a big group, it's hard. Not everybody right. wants to, you know, air their opinion or, but try to make it safe and casual so that people feel comfortable. Absolutely. So you started your career mostly in sales and then you were general manager at Cody you were there for a little over five years. Talk to us about your experience as, as general manager, because I think that kind of really set you on this path towards CEO. Yeah, I was actually at Cody for about seven and a half years, but I'll tell you a little bit about some of the stepping stones, the two GM roles that I had. So I was fortunate to have a great sponsor leader who's still in my life today, by the way. And he said, I was in, you know, I, I was senior VP of sales. I had done all these great things in sales. And I I loved sales. And I managed huge customer teams and customer management. But I knew that I could do more. And he said, well, you need to get true P&L, cross-functional experience, learn how to like run an advertising budget, do all this. And it was at the time that we were acquiring OPI. Cody had bought OPI. And that was like my dream job. And the founder decided not to retire or leave the business right away. So they came to me and said, well, we had thought we were going to put you there, but instead we have this great opportunity in Canada. Should you choose to move there and you could be the GM and and run this integrated prestige and mass business. And I'm like, okay, I've not ever been to Montreal. That's where they wanted me to live. It snowed in April, by the way. I think everybody was out on a hockey game on a Friday night and nobody really would speak English to you in the center of Montreal. I'm like, well, how about Toronto? (laughs) Because we had an office there and they said, sure. So Toronto and Montreal, I had dual offices and I had a fabulous team and I had to turn their business around. And but I had to understand every function. And so that then became the first, I call it, strategic role that I had, that I had to manage a full P&L, but also not be the expert on every function in the company. I had to be the one that was getting the best out of each individual and asking the right questions. And that was a great role. And I was there for several years. That was one of my favorite jobs, by the way. To this day, most of that team is still intact that I put together and, and or am I still very 
closely connected with. It just was a great turnaround story and a real pivotal moment. That sounds like your first turnaround too. Is that- yeah, that was my first big turnaround. Yeah, that's exciting. Profit. Were it you a little cool. nervous? Were you like, can I do this? <laughs> no, that's a big responsibility. I don't know that I like, I'm kind of an optimistic person. Like, yeah. what's the worst that can happen? You know, I'm going to try. <laughs> that's true, right? <laughs> I guess it I'm, can't get much I'm gonna worse. I'm going to try. We'll get to some failures in a minute, but that was fabulous. So then OPI came knocking because the founder retired and they said somebody else was moving on that had filled the GM role. And would I love that? I'm like, what have we been waiting for? So I moved from Toronto to LA. That was my second time in LA, now my third. And I had to integrate a family run business originally led by founders, bought by this big public company and integrate it. It wasn't as easy as I thought. (laughs) That was much harder, right? Because you're going up against, you know, 30 years of cultural history, founder led and trying to integrate it into this big behemoth. That's like a clash, (laughs) right? That's not so easy. Um, You know, that was one of like a critical learning too, because one of my mantras is, when I come into situations like that, you always have to respect the past, but you have to get people aligned to create the new future. And you quickly find out who wants to do that and who doesn't, <laughs> right? And that's a lot of work. So that was a key learning. But those were two pivotal GM roles that then set me up for my first CEO role, which I left. Cody after seven and a half years to be a first time CEO with a private equity firm. And I did that for a couple, two and a half years, and then had the opportunity to move to Florida, where for the first time in my career, I lived near my family. I lived near my father, my mother, who had been divorced, right? And one of my two sisters. And I worked for somebody in the industry that I admired very much, but I left my traditional CPG beauty background and went to be a president for an omni-channel retailer. So I ran an omni-channel business in apparel for Chico's. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about, but Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You'll be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Before we get there, just for clarity, because you said it was your first CEO role um, and you said it was a private equity group, but I think that yeah. what you, it was Paracone, right? Was the, yes, name of the brand that you mm-hmm. were CEO of. And so, but that was owned, I think, by this private equity firm that you're referring to. Yes, they were. That was owned by Lion Capital. Mm-hmm. I did not exit the business. They then had several other CEOs and then sold it eventually to the Huck Group. But I spent two and a half years kind of 
scaling it to its next level after its original and worked with Dr. Paracone himself, the founder, who's uh, just such a gentleman and somebody that I still hear from from time to time and developed a very nice partnership with. Was that a turnaround as well? It was a turnaround. And we were still in the midst of it. I got to be honest. I always call it like, you think about like fixing up your house. I was halfway through the kitchen remodel and <laughs> we lived on a great block, but it, it needed a, it needed to, it needs some fine tuning. But I was called and uh, I had been recruited by the recruiter who said, I have this great opportunity to kind of think about, you know, really building a brand, another turnaround story for a retail apparel company. And it was Soma at the time, Soma, which is a division of Chico's. And I said, you realize I have no apparel experience, but I would love a to talk to Shelly Broder, who at the time was the CEO and someone I who I admired greatly in the industry. And we had crossed paths during some of my Walmart days in Canada. And I couldn't wait to just visit with her. And we had a lot of common connections in the industry. And I went to meet with her and she's like, you got to come work for this company. The added bonus was I had family. And for the first time and at that point, had never been close to family, was always moving and said, my husband said, you go get that job. You get that, you get that puppy. (laughs) I was like, okay, I'm going to get that job. And settled in, had some phenomenal success, building a team, transforming Soma, like comp stores, winning all these awards. The board had just given me a great big salary increase, kind of, I call it getting my worth. And, and COVID happened. Well, guess what? You know what happened to retail during COVID. So I was restructured out of a job. They eliminated all the brand presidents and I was left on the sideline. And I'm like, oh my gosh, first of all, in my outstanding career, here it is that I'm in what I thought was kind of my final stages in an area where I wanted to live in. And I had to grapple with like, this wasn't because of performance, it was because of circumstance. And now what, you know, I I remember saying to my husband, guess what, we aren't likely to find a great CEO job in Naples, Florida, like we're either going to be moving back to New York, where I lived, or back to LA, because those are the meccas of all of beauty. And that's pretty much what I'm known for. And so I started networking and leveraging and I got a call from recruiter actually before that position was eliminated who had said there's this job at Milani and remember how I told you one of my sponsors well he happened to be working with this private equity firm and he was a board member of a couple of their operating companies and I called him I said what do you think about Milani he said you'd be really good at it but you realize it's a turnaround right I'm like you know me I love turnarounds. But yeah, I'm that's up, got my I'm name to, written all over it. Yeah, I'll come back to LA, you know, maybe not forever, but I'll come back to LA. But that, you know, I'll, I want to talk about the profound moment where you kind of lose your job and suddenly you're like, oh my gosh, is my identity tied with my job? And yeah. what are people going to think? And people don't really give a hoot. It was a right. circumstance. So I got busy and I powered up that network. You remember I told you I had this, this vast, rich network and three months to the day pretty much I started with Milani but I started in the heat of COVID I was behind a zoom screen sitting in Florida you know on my way to moving to LA during a major shutdown you remember LA shut down it was hard it was and you know when you first look under the hood 
well, the category had taken a 20% decline. It was one of the hardest things I ever had to face. I don't want to go too much into all the detail, but suffice it to say, here I am three and three plus years later, and we are crushing it. We've had nine straight quarters of double digit growth, outpacing category on average two plus times. We've reset every record that we've ever hit. We just finished, closed our year, and we are a private company, but our consumption was between 25 and 30% up. And we're at the highest market share, highest brand awareness. I just was awarded by WWD Beauty Inc. Brand Builder of the Year. So it was like... I saw that. Congratulations. Thank you. It was just like, not that I'm a person that basks in the glory, but it was a nice affirmation of what my team and I have done during very difficult circumstances. And taking a brand that is over 20 years old and making it relevant and resonant. And our founders are on the board, our original founder co-owners that sold to sold it to a private equity firm. And they're so proud of what we've done. That to me is, you know, just just so special and so reaffirming to my team. And my team is great. Like I will tell you, I think, you know, thinking about how you build teams is an important part of what a CEO does. I have amassed a fabulous whole team with very high engagement scores, a really strong culture, and we built it brick by brick. But it started with my leadership team. Many of them I've worked with in my past. So my CMO, my chief commercial officer, and the chief supply chain officer, the three Two of us had worked together at Cody, and one of one of them I had worked with at J and J Neutrogena. So it's like getting part of the band back. What what I mean by that is just like first of all, I knew they were all capable. We're all aligned. Doesn't mean we don't have conflict and you know trade offs with one another, but we're all motivated towards the same future that we want to build, and um, that's very very rewarding. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's no easy feat to build a strong team. And you've had to do it over and over and over again at all these different places, all these different companies. And it sounds like, you know, of course, with that type of experience, you have probably this amazing Rolodex of incredible team members you can take with you and and build um, or turn around businesses, because that sounds like you're the thing you enjoy. Do you still enjoy the turnarounds? And how did you, when you thought about, you know, when you think back to your first turnaround, which was Cody, yeah. And where you are now, like, what was your perception back then, which is probably similar to maybe my perception or other people listening, you don't really know what to expect. Mm. What did you think turnarounds were? And what have you learned that they actually are? Well, this, con- the context of this one was very different than one at Cody, because my team owns everything, product development, product sourcing, right? Where I was at Cody, we, it was a public company that relied on various global functions that created product. I was responsible for all of market execution and, de- you know, defining pricing and collaboration and supply chain locally and all the government laws and things like that. Whereas at Milani, it's soup to nuts. We are running the business. So everything, you know, your player coach on everything. So I think a turnaround you know, depending on the circumstances, this is like running our own business. Like one day I'm talking about cash flow. The next is what's our 
our five-year strategic long-range plan to, hey, I need to talk to Ulta to talk about our next product launch. I mean, everything matters. Every person matters. And it's a very small entrepreneurial company. So you wear a lot of hats versus in a big public company, which is wonderful to be resourced that way. You have a plenitude of resources. I call us smart, scrappy, entrepreneurial. And that's one of the things that I also think makes it a little bit different because I can work with my suppliers or customers. And I'm like, oh, we can make that decision today because it's six of us sitting around the table. I don't have to wait three months to get through bureaucracy and all of that. But that turnaround is like, you got to gear up. You got to see it. And you got to, whether, whether I call it courage or resilience or strategic agility, it's so important because the stakes are so high, right? The stakes are so high, you know, at one point, you know, because I'm responsible for those 80 people I pay every week, right? Are we going to, you know, and cash flow and things like that are really, really important in that environment while you're trying to think about growing a profitable business. Right. So it's not sales at all costs. Like the one mindset that we rallied everybody behind was we win as one and that these independent autonomous decisions don't always work in a small entrepreneurial company, that you have to make people have a great line of sight to the enterprise, which great for their development, though, is they're writing the next chapter of a really great book. And they have such influence, like they can see the immediacy of their impact, like but like their impact is immediate and really young people too, right? That's just starting their careers. I'm like, do you realize it took me 10 years to be able to get that kind of visibility? Like they have visibility immediately. It's immediate. I mean, and so when you think back to all of your experiences here, I mean, I'm sure there's been so many ups and downs. You mentioned COVID being one of them. But when you think about maybe from like a leadership perspective and the things that you've learned over time to become an amazing leader, what are some of the, not maybe failures, but the real tough lessons that you've learned to help get you to where you are? Well, I think for me, the biggest thing I had to learn was to be vulnerable, right? Because so many times people think of as a leader as everything's perfect. It's like, no, get out under the veneer, be open with the be transparent about the reality of the situation. So that would be number one, right? Is being okay with being vulnerable because that's just that's just being human and that it's okay to fail. I, I don't like to use the word fail. And I never use the word blame. It's all learning, right? So learn what are the correction of errors and not being afraid to lean into that. And being open with your team members about mutual accountability, but not blame, and being able to move on from that. But I always balance, so I'll t- you know, we talk about this transparency with the art of possibility, because I think if you don't give people an inspiring vision, they have nothing to hope for, <laughs> especially when you're in a turnaround, right? So sharing what is possible, how you're going to measure that and then what's in the way because as leaders our job is to get that stuff out of the way and you know building a long-term sustainable business that is able to create great results so those are some big lessons and then i think you know i'm fortunate that i have a great board surrounding milani that has independent experts including our financial experts 
And I always say, bring them in, get stakeholder alignment, ask for help when help matters. Don't wait till things, you know, ask for help when help matters is a really important learning lesson. Because if you don't ask for help, and I always tell people, like, don't bring me in after the fact, like, I could have helped. The same holds true for all your stakeholders. Bring them in when they can actually help. Right. That's something founders, I think, really struggle with is asking for help because it's part of being vulnerable. And especially with investors or, or partners that can be helpful. And you're like, I know they can help me, but I really don't want them to know <laughs> that this is going down right now. <laughs> That's really a tough hurdle to get over. Yeah. And I think you have to create back to the safe space and with your own team, your own leadership team is being comfortable with conflict, like and having diverse set of opinions and you might even have a different set of beliefs, but that at the end, you're going to kind of talk it out, listen and figure out what the best path forward is. And then having everybody, you know, align and not, I I'll call it no hands from the grave, please. You know, after we make a decision, let's not, let's not have any cracks in the armor so that everybody can see that you descended on a point of view, but it's important to make a decision, right? It's important to get people aligned around that decision so that you can rally the rest of the team, whether it's a, you know, decision about growth or, or whatever it is. It's just important. Absolutely. And as CEO, what's the biggest thing you've learned about becoming a CEO? Because you've had lots of leadership roles. CEO is pretty unique in its own. How would you describe it being different? Mm -hmm. And what's the biggest thing you've learned about it? First of all, I believe the CEO's job is to set the strategy for the company. And to be the coordinator or orchestrator of all the fabulous talent you have, right? And so I have to have a great eye for talent. I have to be able to make critical decisions. I have to see past the near term and look out for kind of all the external factors. So I think it's it's vision, strategy, and leadership around the people aspect. So the people piece is the most important though, right? Businesses run, but people make them make it happen. People make them successful. Yeah. People make them successful. Exactly. Amazing. So many awesome things. You mentioned the word sponsors. I just wanted to ask, what do you mean by sponsor? So like a mentor? You know, yeah. Early on, people would say, What's the difference between a mentor and sponsor? The way I would describe it is I have lots of mentors, right? And I mentor a lot of people. But a sponsor is someone that kind of will take you multiple places and sponsor your career. Meaning, I will sponsor people that I really think have the track record, the aptitude, want the help, want to learn. And I have taken people that way and I'll really invest in them. And then there are people I mentor, which might just be going through the motions. A sponsor is somebody who's going to take you places and really be honest with you about what they think your capabilities are. Sometimes good and sometimes not, right? And be honest with you. Yeah. But that's what I mean by a sponsor. So I have a certain sponsor who who I won't publicize right now, but that has taken me to companies and then is involved in this current situation. So it's that yeah, that's important. That's important. Plus there's this implicit trust and respect, right? I always say pretty much and I'm not a sports analysis or anything, but like thinking about, you know, if you're on a basketball court, like you could do a pass without even looking at each other. <laughs> That's like important. 
That's actually funny. I don't know if you've seen the was it the David Beckham documentary. Oh, that was great. Right. And they talk, he talked about that with his team yeah. and how passing the ball was just so natural with his teammates. It was just like this bond where kind of like you said, they probably didn't need to look at each other and they were able to pass it so easily. So it reminded me of that when you said that. And I think that's exactly that's a very interesting thing because I haven't really heard the word sponsor in that context before. But there you're right. There's a very big difference between having a mentor who kind of just helps guide you and someone who's really putting their name behind you and, and helping you get to the next level, believes in you and is in line, I guess, or help. How does it work? Do they align with what you want or do they say, I think you're capable of way more than you think you are? Or I guess it's different for everybody. I call it just like any partnership. First, it starts with like, trust and accountability. And let's, let's be clear, I worked for that person on and off and I delivered, right? So, you know, trust, accountability and performance, I think all tie into it too. And, you know, just this mutual learning. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And so when you um, look back at your kind of path, if you could change anything about your journey, what would you have done differently? Oh, I think like probably not move 17 times, <laughs> but you know, that, that just, we could go on and on about those. Like, okay, so which move would I have taken away? Oh, you yeah. know, then I wouldn't necessarily be where I am now, but I have to say, you know, I never had children, right? My husband and I never had children. We've moved a lot. He had to put his career on the back burner clearly to kind of follow this driven desire and I think at one point he said, you have the moving truck pulling up before we've even discussed it. <laughs> you know, so that probably wasn't so fair to him, but we chose to do that. Right. So I think, I think I would have, the environment's changed. COVID changed a lot. You know, I would never expect anyone to do that in this day and age. It just happened to be my path. You know, but, what, but if I, but if I would give anybody advice and say, I would say, don't, don't do that. Don't that. That's like maybe three or four. Seventeen's a, a, a bit crazy. Do you have a most? Is um any part of your eighty person team remote today, or how do you think about remote work at Milan? Oh, okay. Well, I first of all, we are hybrid, but we do have some fully remote people, and then we have some that are in office all the time. So we have a warehouse which is based in Vernon. Obviously, they're shipping product, getting products so there every day. And then our office staff is hybrid. So we go into the office a certain amount of time and then we're working remotely. And then our field sales team is all remote. So it's kind of a, a culmination of all of that. But what we really try to do is we really engage people in these, you know, big meetings that are driving the business, whether it's sales and operation planning meetings, whether it's a brand marketing meeting, whether it's a product development stage gate meeting, whether it's the financial review every month, or we engage people in all of that. And we try to do those in-person meetings. Our business is touch and feel though. Think about color and product testing and things like that. There is a requirement to be together in person, but we do it in a way that is collaborative and engaging. And I think we've found the perfect balance, right? And I don't, I don't necessarily think everybody needs to be in the office every day to get productivity or work. In fact, I think we have happier employees because we're hybrid and it's just uh, it's part of our culture now. We work hybrid. Hybrid, I think, is a really great in-between, right? Because I think 
people want to have the flexibility to be remote and be able to spend more time at home, but then they also want that camaraderie. They want to be in the office. They want to get the energy from the work and all those things. So I think that's that hybrid model is is so great for a lot of people. And you know how it works, right? It they want all of that, but they also need that touch and feel where you're like having lunch together out on the patio or you run into each other right after a meeting. Because once you hit that Zoom screen off, it seems very transactional. It's those nuances that happen in person that are super important to building that trust relationship, the collaboration that's required. And we try to bring people together to do that. And it's, I think it's the perfect balance. And they feel more comfortable. They feel safe. They feel a part of something. And to go back to like never in my work time, if I had so many generations of people working together and I have a very diverse group of individuals. And it's so nice because you get to experience that in person, right? And there's so much nuance to that. And I think people, they want to learn from one another and they want to be understood and they want to have the voice and and it's important to have both. So it's worked out really well for us. And just to make friends. I mean, it gets lonely working from home if you're home every day. <laughs> yeah. Well, like sometimes, you know, you say, I think this morning because I'm working from home today because I hurt my leg. But I was like, I need to go walk and get a cup of coffee real quick just to like right. get, out <laughs> know, get out of the house. <laughs> I know. I'm over here. I've been working from home for the past couple of years. I mean, it's not... It's not easy. It's but it's definitely lonely. You know, you're like, okay, who can well, I have lunch with? Where can yeah, I have maybe your new, new Year's resolutions like mine is just taking the time to actively network with people. And yeah. there's there's so many more in person events now, and there's so many ways that you can connect with people. And I do think that's really important. So with the product of Milani, what are you excited about? What's kind of next for the brand? What are maybe some of the best sellers? Tell us about the product. Oh, okay. Oh, I love this one. So first of all, I don't know how much you know about Milani, but Milani is prestige quality for an inclusive audience. So it's where we make all of our product. We co-collaborate with all the prestige manufacturers and we actually get the best ideas early on. So a lot of our content creators will say Milani is like the best in drugstore makeup that performs like high end. So we have super high quality formulations. So, and our positioning is such that you could get three of our lip oils for one of Dior's lip oil and we're the number one lip oil. So that's a really hot product right now. We just are launching the nude collection of our lip oil. So try that out. That's a great one. Our setting spray, which has been an historic legacy product, is the number one setting spray in America. And we've had tremendous growth on setting spray. We launched an extra large and we have an SPS variant and a, all sorts. But our original setting spray is like on fire because people are the incidence of makeup usage is up, obviously, since COVID. And it's a great way to finish off your, your makeup. We're excited this spring season, which is launching... It'll, the resets start rolling out in our major customers for our color fetish lip stain. So it's a lip stain product that kind of goes on glossy, but then leaves this really natural stain on your lips. We have 12 awesome shades. And then it's getting a lot of viral attention right now is our Cheek Kiss Cream Bronzer, which complements our Cheek Kiss Blush, Cream Blush. So those are, the, those are some hot things. We're known for our Bake Blush. If I told you how it was made, it's like ateliers in Italy. These ladies are 
hand kneading dough, putting mica in it. They bake it in an oven. They hand brush it and then put it on a, it's all on a terracotta tile. Then it goes into the compact. Like you should see how this stuff is made. And basically you can get our blush for $10. Oh, wow. Yeah. Have you gone and seen this yourself? Oh, yes. That's awesome. A lot of our manufacturers are based in Italy and they just have such high quality and we're made, like I said, at the same place that a lot of our prestige counterparts are made. But yes, I've seen how the cake is baked. <laughs> how they're baking the cake and um, blushing it too. Yes. Um, so before we wrap up here, I know we're coming to time. Is there any final advice do you have for aspiring executives or business leaders or those wanting to be CEO like you one day? Oh, well, I think I always say, just ask people for help. Like if you admire something about someone, ask them for coffee. I think so many, what's the worst that happens? Somebody says no, just making time to ask people. But I would say, focus on what you're good at. Like you have to be good at something, right? Before you get to the next level and the next level and the next level, be really good at what you do now and make sure you love it, right? I always feel like my job success or my career success because my life is so integrated with my work and not in a bad way, in a good way. Because I love what I do. I love leading people. I love business. I love transformation. I love product. It's this perfect entanglement. (laughs) So you have to love what you do. And then I would say, you know, to me, it's like have a bias for action. The strategic agility part's really important in today's day and age with the millions of things that we have flying at us. And believe in the art of possibility and get behind the team. You know, that's. Those are the main things I'd say. Well, I think you've had a fascinating career and I can't wait to see where you continue to take it. I think turnarounds are just fascinating. You know, obviously I have a show about CEOs. So I think leadership is awesome and I love what you've done. I mean, you've how many turnarounds have you had? You've had like four, I think, or five. <laughs> well, this one's not over. I've like my goal is to take this company and be a top five mass player. We're number seven now wow. and double the size of the company. Amazing. Well, I can't wait to see you do it. I have no doubt that it will happen. Thank you so much, Mary, for joining me on the show today and, and sharing your inspiring career journey. Thank you, Lee. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.